0: Thank you so much for checking out the connect church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon So let's jump right in and check out this week's message Man, It is so good to see y'all here last week four of you guys showed up for the 11 o'clock service So it's so good uh, to have y'all know a lot of people are out of town and I just tell you it's just so good uh, yet for another Sunday to make much of Jesus together and to do everything we can to connect everyone we can to the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Did y'all notice yesterday just this much a little bit cooler outside? Almost as if fall is coming, right? And this week it's going to be in the, in the 70s, which is just, I mean, I love this time of year. But it also judges up that age-old debate about this candy right here. I love it. This is uh, this is candy corn. The autumn mix. Is there any other mix of candy corn? Is there like a spring mix or something? I don't know. But there is a debate about this now. I love candy corn. In that, there really is a fine line, like where you can eat just enough candy corn where you feel like, man, that was good but one more piece of candy corn and you are sick and dying in your stomach, right? There's just a fine line there. In fact, we had a church member I love dearly at our church. She she posted something on Facebook. I'm gonna be honest with you, it's a little harsh. There's a whole lot of truth there, okay? Here we go. How many candy corn lovers do we have in the house? Could you raise your hand? This is for you. It is almost candy corn season for you, crayon-eating psychopaths. Hey. And there's a whole lot of truth there so how many people love candy corn there's your psychopath in the house today but man i tell you what it's so good to be back we um uh, we took a break last week and so uh we have left lazarus in the grave for two weeks now in reality scripture has him there for four days and today we're going to see what happens when jesus finally arrives in bethany Today, we join Jesus yet again at this graveside service of Lazarus. Let's begin by looking at verse number 17. It says this, that on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, uh, this timing issue is very important and really is gonna teach us a whole lot about the events that are about to unfold. First of all, as we've already established, there are some timing issues here. Since Jesus was across the Jordan at the time where Mary and Martha sent this messenger and this message from Bethany to Jesus, that their brother had been so sick, it would have taken a messenger, an entire day's travel, just to get to Jesus. And what I believe, and what most scholars believe, is that by the time the message that Lazarus was sick had gotten to Jesus, that Lazarus had already died. That's day one. Well, the Bible tells us in verse 6 that the Lord delayed two days before he left for Bethany. That's day number two. That's day number three. And then it would take Jesus an entire day to travel there. On that fourth day would have been a travel day for Jesus, long before he and his disciples could get to Lazarus' graveside. But a question I have of the text and all this timing questions we have is was God really late? Was God in the flesh? Jesus, was he really late? Remember what his sisters had said to Jesus when he pulled into town, uh, by their estimation, four days late. If you would have been here, Martha and Mary cried, if you would have been here, Jesus, then our brother Lazarus would have lived, wouldn't have died. The, The insinuation we find in the text is that, hey, look, man, Jesus simply just showed up too late. But can God really be late? Well, that's really all how you you measure time. It all depends really on how you and I measure time, doesn't it? Have you ever wondered how it is that you and I know right now that it's 1130 outside of the fact that it's sitting on a screen back there on your iPhones or your watches? How is it for accuracy that we know how you and I measure time? And I got this from the National Institute of Standards and technology. Let me just read this to you. You see, the official source of time currently relies on cesium atoms. The best of these clocks are accurate to within one three hundred millionth of a second per year. Inside these clocks, now listen to this. Electromagnetic waves are aimed at a collection of cesium atoms that absorb this radiation to make a quantum jump to a different energy state. But this jump only happens when atoms absorb waves of precise frequency, the number of wave cycles per second, and that is how time is measured. It's incredible, isn't it? I don't understand anything I just read. Man, it's pretty cool how we measure time. In fact, this is a picture of an atomic clock that resides in the University of Colorado in Boulder. It's an optical lattice atomic clock. It is so stable and accurate that it is said it will not gain or lose a second for the next 15 billion years. Now while fascinating, I want you to know this, that this time, this atomic time, isn't the time that God is bound to or that he solely operates in. This is how we measure time. But God's watch is not set to an earthly atomic clock. Rather, he operates on an eternal timetable. A timetable, catch this, where all time bows to him. Aaron Wilburn, a Southern gospel writer and artist who died a couple years ago of COVID, he wrote this lyric about the tragic events of Lazarus' death. And speaking of Jesus, who shows up at his graveside service, simply says this, when he's four days late, he is still on time. Hey, Mary and Martha, hey, Lazarus, hey, believer, I want you to hear me. God is not late, ever. He is an on-time God. Here's the truth, he may not come exactly when you and I want him to come, but he will be there, always be there right on time when we need him the most. Let me ask you this question today, opening the, the message to what time is your watch synchronized to? Is your watch synchronized to an earthly time measured in atoms? Or is your watch, your time synchronized to eternity, to God, the author of time himself. You see, there's something about the timing here in the text. There's something about these four days. You see, Jewish rabbis taught in that day that once a person died, their spirit would hover over their body for three days. And here's why it would do that. Because it was looking for a way back into the body. Golly, that changes the way you look at a graveyard, doesn't it? But after three days, when the body began its natural decomposition, the soul would ultimately leave, finding no way back into the body. It would finally leave for good. Now, I want you to hear me this is not biblical teaching. This is faulty theology that was alive in the Jewish faith at Jesus' day. But nonetheless, After three days, a person's death was seen even by the Jewish faithful. Their death was irreversible, irrevocable, and irredeemable. In fact, they would tell you it would take God intervening for someone to live again. Exactly. Exactly. It would take God intervening. You see, the stage is set. Isn't it? Watch this in verse 19. We find that many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. From the looks at it, that not even the West Chapel at Ashley's Funeral Home here in Sevierville could hold all of those who came to Lazarus's graveside service. We find that just from this crowd, that Lazarus was loved, was likable, and that many people mourned his loss. But guys, he'd been in the grave for four days. What hope is there? Meaning as we line up this timing, Lazarus not only died four days before, but he was buried on the very day that he died. Now this was per custom. You see, Jewish people did not embalm the body of a person who had died. Most of this was due to the fact that they lived in a hot climate in the Middle East. And so rather than embalming the body, they would bury the body as quickly as they could in the tomb on the same day of their passing. So the women would have taken Lazarus' body on the day he died to the tomb. There they would place linen strips around him, place spices on those linen strips, also known as Lazarus' grave clothes. Why would they go through this process? It would hide, it would mask those unpleasant smells and the sight of Lazarus' body that had died and began the natural process of decomposition. Uh, remember this, what the Bible reminds us in Genesis 3:19: For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And Lazarus's body was beginning the process of turning back to dust. In verse 34, as Jesus arrives, he asked the question: where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And and remember this, and I just want to remind you of this uh, from a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus wept. C.S. Lewis would frame it up this way. We follow one who stood and wept at the grave of Lazarus, not surely because he was grieved that Mary and Martha wept and sorrowed for their lack of faith as some see it, but because death, the punishment of sin, is even more horrible in his eyes than it is in ours. We just stop for a moment. Oh, what a Savior who weeps for us in our sin and who weeps with us in our suffering. Ken Geyer, in his book, Incredible Moments with the Savior, said of this moment, and I love this, so strange. One with absolute power would surrender to so small an army as tears. And yet Jesus did. Jesus left in verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Remember a couple weeks ago, man, the very theme of John chapter 11 is the love of Christ. See how he loved him. And yet there were critics in the crowd too. Hey, by the way, there's always critics in the crowd. They're always there. And here's what they said. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Now, it's obvious that Jesus, this miracle worker, he loved Lazarus. But for many there, it was also obvious that Jesus had his limitations. For if Jesus could heal disease, why didn't he help heal his friend in time? What they didn't understand is not that Jesus had his shortcomings. But it was merely Jesus setting the stage For glory, for Him to shine His glory. Let me ask you, church, which is harder? To make a sick man well or to make a dead man live? You see, Jesus is setting the stage. And then we come to a pretty incredible verse, verse 38, and Jesus once more deeply moved. And we're gonna, we're gonna do some work here with the phrase deeply moved. Uh, Notice it doesn't say that Jesus is still weeping. This is an entirely different Greek word in the New Testament that he was deeply moved. But before we do work there, as he came to the tomb, it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. If you were to ever go to Israel with me, you would see such caves and such tombs all over the place. You see, I can imagine as Jesus walked up to that tomb that that stone tomb served as a reminder of the curse of sin, the corruption of his creation, and the crushing power that death really does have. But we must stop for just a moment because there's more to meet the eye with the phrase deeply moved here in the Greek, the, the language of the New Testament. This carries with it, instead of this imagery of of Jesus somberly sitting, graveside sulking, it carries with it the idea that Jesus is preparing to get into the ring with the greatest enemy of mankind, which is death. In one corner, you have Jesus, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, and in the other corner, you have the grave. One scholar noted about verse 38 that really this language here carries the idea of an animal snorting in anger, as if getting ready to charge. The picture here of Jesus being deeply moved is that Jesus is readying himself to take a charge at death. John Calvin would say about this word, it indicates not so much sympathy. But that Jesus is preparing to get in the ring like a fighter. Preparing for the contest. He groans because the violent tyranny of death, which he had to overcome, now stands before his eyes. I want to remind you that our Jesus does not shrink from death. As we're going to see, he shouts it down. Jesus never shrinks from death. He will shout it down. Watch this in verse 39. Take away the stone, Jesus said. Hey, can I stop here for a moment? Doesn't he give us a really good picture of what you and I at graveside services really the only good we offer? That what you and I offer at a graveside service is we can move gravestones back and forth. Jesus is showing us what we can do in our strength because soon he's gonna show us what only he can do. In his strength, take away the stone," he said. And here comes Martha. But Lord, the sister of the dead man, by the by, this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. I, I love that she said he's been there four days. It's like Jesus, this is your fault. Can I remind you? He's been there four days when he didn't have to be. I can imagine. Mary and Martha, at this moment, when Jesus says, move the stone, and they were taken back. All those who were mourning with them were like, Man, don't, don't remove that stone. Are you crazy? You see, the smell of death is something that is striking and it's repulsing. But the real tragedy here is that Martha still did not understand that Jesus was up to something. In her mind, Jesus was late. Lazarus is still dead. Remember what we talked about two weeks ago, how we weep with the God who weeps in John eleven thirty five. 35? That grief at its best, it's confusing. That grief is so disorienting. And here we see a beloved sister in the throes of grief. She just doesn't see it. And Jesus tries to remind her here in verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the very glory of God? Jesus is reminding Martha of what he said just 15 verses ago. Back in verse 25 where he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, remember. You know, I think. Really what Jesus is getting across to Martha is I don't just teach resurrection, I am resurrection. I just don't preach life, I am eternal life itself. Remember Martha. You know I look at the tomb of Lazarus today here in John chapter 11 and I'm reminded that long after biological life is done, eternal life remains in Jesus. Long after your biological life and my biological life is done, what remains for the believer is eternal life in Jesus. And so in verse 41, we find that they listened to Jesus. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, as he began to pray, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. Now watch this. The very reason why Lazarus, Jesus is at Lazarus's graveside, that they may believe that you sent me. This is the idea behind the entirety of the gospel of John. Remember this in the summation of why he wrote his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says that I've written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This event with Lazarus is much more than just Lazarus living again. What Jesus did at his graveside service was for Martha and for Mary for his disciples, for the Jews that had gathered there that day, for you and I to look in and to see what he can do. And then, in verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus. Come out. It's amazing to me that Jesus shouts into death. He summons the soul of Lazarus. He shakes the gates of Sheol and showed the world just what he can do and who he truly was. The stage is set and Jesus, our resurrection and life now shines. Because watch what happens here in verse 44. The dead man came what? What? Dead men don't come out of graves. But listen to me. It's not that it isn't done. It can't be done. Dead men do not come out of graves. You're telling me in verse 44 that Lazarus went from decomposition to recomposition? He went from the suffocation of death to resurrection to life? Only... The resurrection in life. Only God himself can make the dead man Lazarus live again. And that's exactly what he did. Especially after four days. And that's exactly what he did. You see resurrection is the resume and the work of God alone. Hey Mary. Hey Martha. Hey Lazarus. Hey, believer, it seems to me like Jesus wasn't late after all. he? And just in case you don't think what happens here in verse 44 is a big deal, you know what you ought to do on the way home? You ought to stop by a graveyard you pass near your house. You ought to get out of your car, go walk in the middle of that graveyard. By the way, I've done this too many times to count. And you ought to shout out among those graves. and see if anybody does. I'm gonna level with you. I've done that a lot. Sure am grateful nobody got out of the grave. Um, That would change a whole lot of life for me. But just sometimes when I think that I can do it on my own, I'll stop by a graveyard. Come out! Nobody does. And I'm quickly reminded that resurrection is the resume and the work of Jesus and Jesus. Alone in there, in verse 44, there it was. Death lay defeated at the feet of the champion Jesus. And I'm gonna tell you, death better be glad That Jesus called Lazarus by name in verse 44. Because I believe with D.A. Carson. That if Jesus had not specified the name Lazarus at that moment. Every tomb in Jerusalem would have given up their dead. Every tomb would have given up their dead. You see there was a fight that was started that day in John chapter 11. Jesus stepping into the ring. Charging at in shouting down death, a fight whose culmination would be crucifixion some eight chapters later. Or we'll see Jesus go 12 rounds with death itself. Only for the end of that 12 rounds for Jesus to be dealt the fatal blow that we deserve for our sin, we will see him fall to the ground and into the grave. But three days later, God would stand his son back on his feet and there deal the final blow to death, a blow from which death will never recover. Jesus won, death zero. Jesus won, death zero. You know, I got to thinking, y'all, y'all have heard of wedding crashers, haven't you? Some of y'all are wedding crashers. I'll see you at the altar at the end of the service. You ever heard of a funeral crasher? Grave robber? We see him here. You know, I got to thinking that the only way Jesus could crash Lazarus' graveside service was if he set in motion his own funeral that day. Crashing the funeral of Lazarus would set in motion the events leading up to Jesus' own crucifixion and his own graveside service. And yet here in the gospel of John chapter 11, Jesus climbs into the ring with death so that Lazarus and everyone Jesus loves like you and me can live. Incredible. And then this event ends with this. On in verse 44 as Lazarus came out at Jesus' command his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face and Jesus said to them hey take off those grave clothes and let him go man I find this interesting in fact it's fascinating to me that Lazarus was alive and yet he was still wearing his grave clothes until jesus tells them to take them off i got to thinking about this morning man how many believers are in this room today that you have eternal life in jesus and yet you are still wearing your old grave clothes grave clothes that belong to you while you were dead in your sin and trespasses and yet they are grave clothes you are still wearing although you are alive in Christ today. How about the grave clothes of anger? Man, back when you were dead in sin and you wore anger around a lot, those were the clothes you used to wear back when you were dead and in sin. And yet you you are alive in Christ. Maybe it's time that you take off those grave clothes of anger and live. How about the grave clothes of lust and pornography and adultery, clothes you used to wear when you were dead in sin, and yet we take a glimpse at Lazarus's tomb at this graveside service, and the call of Christ is to take off those grave clothes? Answer me this: How foolish would it seem? How crazy would it have been if Lazarus, a week later out of Jesus, is calling him out of his grave? Tell him to take his old grave clothes off if you and I were to see Lazarus out in that graveyard. See him diving into the, the garbage cans around that graveyard, digging up his old grave clothes and putting them on again. You guys, you wouldn't look at Lazarus and go, you're crazy. Look what Christ has done. You're no longer that dead man. You're alive. That's foolishness. then why do you and I put on those old grave clothes? Why are you wearing those grave clothes today? Grave clothes of being a workaholic, an alcoholic, and an addict. Take off your grave clothes. Those grave clothes of of bitterness and unforgiveness and gossip and, and slander. Hear me, they are not fit for the child of God who's been made alive in Christ. Take off those old grave clothes. Why are you digging out the grave clothes of greed and pride and idolatry, selfishness, apathy, indifference? Church, take off those old grave clothes and live. And in the church world, what happens to be my, my, my profession and, and kind of the world I live in, everybody talks about revival all the time. They got sin revival. God, we wanna see revival. Can I tell you what the church needs right now more than revival? Church needs repentance. You say, well, what does that look like? Are you ready? What does that look like? It looks like taking off the grave clothes. And live for Christ and in Christ and with Christ. Simply put, grave clothes are not fit for those who are alive in Christ. Remember what Paul would write to church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead and our sins or our transgressions for it is by grace in which you've been saved. And so here is a simple challenge for every person here who Jesus is your resurrection and life, for every person who claims to love and to know and to follow after him. Here's the challenge. Take off your grave clothes and Jesus is your resurrection and life. Can I ask you something? What can death do to you? Do not fear the grave, for the grave robber himself has given you life. Can I tell you something about your grave clothes and mine? The ones that you and I will pick up from time to time and put back on, although we are alive in Christ. Can I tell you three things about your grave clothes? Number one, they are heavy. Lazarus could have been facing some 60 pounds of linen wrapped around his body. They're heavy. Number two, they are suffocating. Listen to me. You cannot live long in grave clothes before it suffocates you. And number three, They stink. They smell like death. Some of us are walking around and we are heavy laden. We are heavy burdened. We're suffocating spiritually. We're carrying around the stench of death. All the while Jesus has made us alive take off your grave clothes and live. You know, I wonder, I want to close with this. I oftentimes wonder about what Paul Harvey would coin was the rest of the story for Lazarus. We're not exactly entirely sure how the rest of his life played out except for, as we'll see in Scripture, he continued to love and follow after Jesus. I wonder about Lazarus. I wonder if the shadow's Of that tomb that day ever came back to haunt him it is no small task for a man to die you cannot go to the tomb and come back the same man and yet we begin to study early church history and tradition that tells us not only Lazarus but Martha and Mary would head towards Gaul to France and there they would preach the gospel And bring people to Jesus. He would become the bishop of Marseille. Where he would stand for Christ unashamed. Refuse to shut up. And would not stop sharing the gospel. Even as the government around him. Became more and more hostile to the gospel. I can imagine in those days. That Lazarus' story would go something like this. You'll never believe it but I was sick and I died. And there was a man who shouted into my grave, shouted down into the depths of Sheol itself and summoned my soul. And where there was death, he brought life. And his name is Jesus. And you know what, there was a day I watched him die on the cross. Days in, I thought there's no way he's finished. But three days later, he rose from the grave. I I can imagine the testimony going across France. But it was a testimony that the emperor, domination at the time, made illegal and could not stomach because the gospel was a threat to his power. And so using the power he had, church tradition tells us that Lazarus was executed. He was beheaded for his faith in Jesus. Here's one thing we know. Lazarus had to face death a second time. Just when you're like, oh God, would you do Lazarus again? Man, sometimes I look at Lazarus and go, that's a pretty rough side of the story. You and I will die biologically and physically once, barring the Lord coming back this guy had to do it twice. But I wonder if as he was being beheaded at the hands of the emperor, I wonder if he did so with an even greater hope having the unique position of already facing the grave and finding out what Paul would write later in 1 Corinthians 15, for this to be true, that death has been swallowed up in victory, that where, oh, death is your victory, where, old oh, death is your sting. But thanks be to God that he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, Paul writes, my dear brothers and sisters, stand Firm and let nothing move you. And now Lazarus is with Jesus. And one day at the second coming, that body that's already been resurrected once, that died again, will be raised with Lazarus in the last days because death has been swallowed up in victory. Hey, church, take off your grave clothes today because the grave robber himself is giving you you life. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Let's pray together, can we? And as we pray, I just, uh, there are two types of folks in the room today. There's some that in this, all this conversation of the grave, of death and dying, there is nothing but fear left for you in that conversation. You don't know what to do about the grave. You don't know what to do with dying. There's fear that rises up in you, and, and part of that reason why is because maybe just maybe you've never trusted in Jesus as your resurrection of mine. I'm going to be honest with you. I fear a lot of things. I'm not a snake guy. I don't like small spaces. Salad's terrifying. But I want you to hear me. The greatest enemy of all mankind, that being death, the product of sin, do not fear. Jesus is my resurrection life. Death no longer has stain. Death cannot have the victory because Jesus is alive and he's made me alive. Some of you today, that's not your story. It's the story of Lazarus. The story of Mary and Martha. But it's not your story today. I want you to hear me. Jesus died on that cross, your sin and mine. He emptied that grave three days later so that today on a day like today, he could be your resurrection life. Hey, five years ago almost, we planted Connect Church so that on a day like today, we could preach the word and share the gospel with you so that today might be the day that you give your heart and life to Jesus. Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.